Without question, you have to have an aptitude for risk that puts you in a slightly uncomfortable position. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team. To the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch. So what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Danielle. I'm really excited today and I have so many questions because today Chelsea Hershorn is our guest on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the founder and CEO of Frida, a company that makes products to make parents' lives easier. I'm so excited because I feel like in my soon-to-be future, I will be obsessed with these products as my friends already are. It's one of the top selling parenting brands on Amazon and you can find their products in over 30,000 stores across the country. Chelsea, thank you for being here. Welcome to Skim From The Couch. Thank you for having me. I adore you guys. Skim From The Couch has taken on a whole new meeting. Yeah, I think everyone now is working from their couches. Okay, we're gonna start out with an easy question. Skim your resume for us. Ooh, okay. I worked in a candy store in high school in my town in in Westchester. My parents instilled that type of work ethic in both me and my siblings from a very young age. But pressing fast forward, not to get into too many details that far back, I graduated from college, went to law school where I met my husband. And during law school, I was a legal intern for the New York Mets. My summer internship, you know, the the legal internship when you're in law school after your second year of law school is a pretty big deal. And it usually ends up, hopefully if all goes well, with an offer at the end of the summer. And so my my summer internship after my second year of law school was with Weil Gotchel, which was a preeminent bankruptcy firm. I started with them my second year of law school. That was in 2007. And then got my offer, September 2008, the world imploded. They actually asked if I would start early. I started with them, I think it was like October 2008. I joined the restructuring group. And my first experience as a lawyer was filing the General Motors and American Airlines bankruptcy and Lehman Brothers. So I spent about two years there. And then my husband and I got married in about 2010. And he was a general counsel for a Brazilian private equity fund that had just acquired Burger King. They had asked him and one of the other associates from the firm to go down to Miami and run the restructuring. That's where Burger King is based and was founded. Uh, I left Weill, you know, shortly after we got married. Florida has what they call authorized house counsel. So you actually don't have to take the bar if you work in-house as an attorney. Um, So it was really focused on finding an in-house role. And at the time we moved, the Miami Marlins, the baseball team, clearly had experience in baseball from law school, was opening a new ballpark. So previous to that, they had actually licensed the facility from the Miami Dolphins, the football team, Mm -hmm. and they didn't have their own ballpark. So they were building their own in Miami, and I was brought on as associate in-house counsel and director of non-baseball revenue. So for the first time in the franchise history, They were going to be trying to sort of drive revenue that wasn't affiliated with baseball revenue. So sort of a, you know, my first foray into running a P&L, like an Mm -hmm. entrepreneurial sort of business unit within a large, the larger confines of a much more resourced organization. 
And so I was there for four and a half years. I got pregnant with my first son. I now have three. And we bought our first house in Miami Beach. And my neighbor, I was still working for the Marlins in-house. I was about probably six months pregnant at the time. Uh, my neighbor, who was like the mayor of our block, was this lovely Swedish woman. She invited us over for dinner and had been telling me about, you know, this business that she had started in her garage, really. And it was still, you know, in her garage, had a few boxes of this like Swedish nasal aspirator that she sold to pediatricians offices and baby boutiques. And her kids were now teenagers and she wanted to know if I knew anyone in Miami interested in taking over the business. And I said, you know, no, but I'll keep my, I'll keep my mm-hmm. ear out. I wasn't a parent yet. It didn't even, it almost like went right over my head. I, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine what the product was. And Eric was like kicking me under the table. He's like, I think she wants you to buy the inventory from her. Then eventually you take over and now are running Frida. Yes. Fast forward. What's something that people can't find out about you from Google or LinkedIn? That I really, you know... Up until that moment, I really was not a risk taker at all. I towed the line. I did what was laid out for me. And I, you know, I would never in a million years have predicted that I would have veered off that course. Carly and I talk about that a lot, that we feel like the skim was like the biggest risk that we would ever take. And we like checked the box. It was like, okay, I took a risk. Having the benefit of hindsight, I, you know, I want to say that I would do it again, but you know, there, now I know so much. That's, you know, we talk about that a lot. Like it's, um, and I always say that to people that are like, should I start a company? Should I not? And I'm like, well, it's actually easier if you don't know what you're getting into all the way. A hundred percent. You know, Eric was asking me at dinner the other night. We've had a lot of at-home dinner conversations recently. <laughs> and he's like, do you think you could do it all over again from scratch? And I said, Honestly, not the same way because so much of the risk that I took in the beginning and and doing this requires so much risk comes from that naivete, right? And, and, and just being brazen enough because you don't know enough. Right. So I want to talk about this idea that you're not a natural risk taker, which I totally get. You were on a path. You graduated, went to law school, I mean, in 2008 to end up at a top tier bankruptcy firm. And yet you chose eventually to do something different. I think a lot of our listeners come to us and ask, I'm on this traditional path, but I think I'd like to do something different. But if people are looking at my resume, I don't know how to tell that story. What skills did you think you got as a lawyer that enabled you to be able to translate that into something else? And what advice would you give people who are, are trying to make a leap from that traditional path into something else? So I think there's two things. One, lawyers are just trained to think differently. I'll never forget during our law school orientation, my parents were there and a lot of first-year law students' families were there. And the dean of the law school delivered this you know, introductory address that said, And they told the families of the students, be prepared to never get the same person back. Their mind just works differently. And I think the underlying crux of how different it is, is that you're you're taught to question everything and to push boundaries and sort of never take anything at face value. And that, I think, quality makes up so much of the sort of foundation of the risks that I took 
and the assumptions that I made or, or didn't make. Then when you think about the, the two years that I spent in restructuring specifically, I basically got a, a primer on what not to do, right? And, and where companies go wrong, how to build a resilient business and a business that can withstand, you know, certain challenges that are unforeseeable, like the one we're in now. But, you know, a lot of these businesses didn't know how to build in resilience into that operating infrastructure. And I had a front row seat for sort of how to navigate those things in advance ahead of that. So I think those two were really important components. And I guess, I think you're asked what advice I would give for people who are, you know, thinking about veering off course. And I think without question, you have to have an aptitude for risk that puts you in a slightly uncomfortable position that I, I genuinely would have thought I never had. And I think the risk combined with the personal passion and experience for the problem that you're solving or you're looking to solve. And I didn't have it at the time that she had asked me to take over the business. But then if you fast forward a few months, I had my first son. She had left a nose Frida in my, in my mailbox and it looked you know, dramatically different than, you know, how people know it today. Mm -hmm. But I pulled it out from my medicine cabinet the first time Hunter got sick. And I said, why isn't this on every corner in America? And why hadn't anyone told me that babies don't know how to blow their nose? And so that risk was only relevant as a corollary to the passion that I had to sort of making this thing universally accessible. Yeah. I think it's, it's one thing to be like, I'm on this traditional path and I think I want to do something entrepreneurial. And it's another thing to be like, I'm on this path and I have an idea that I just feel with everything in me is the right thing to try out. I want to go back to that dinner you were talking about with your neighbor. Also, was her name Frida? (laughs) Everyone asked where the name came from. It's a great question. Her name, no, Frida means free from or peaceful in Swedish. Mm -hmm. And so it was free from boogers, free from snot for like a peaceful night's sleep. So were you like, I mean, who is this woman who I'm having dinner with? She's a neighbor. I kind of know her. Like, seems like she's got a cool thing going, but she literally just asked me to take over her business. Talk to me about how that evolved. Okay. So left her house at night and like I said, had Hunter, my oldest of three, now probably three months later. And when he was about two or three months old, he got his first cold. I had no idea what to do. That turkey baster thing that they send you home with from the hospital was was totally ineffective and useless. And separate and apart from that, this image of the inside of it had just gone viral where a mom cut one open and it was like covered in black mold. I mean, it's now like an infamous photo and no one really walks you through these like fundamental everyday problems or, you know, nuances to raising a child. In the beginning, that you know, that book, What to Expect, was written, you know, 50 some odd years ago. And I think in chapter 13, and we, we talked about this when we were launching Freedom Mom last year, chapter 13, uh, you know, on what to pack for your hospital bag. Oh my God, I'm on that part. There's no manual. There's no how-to for parents. And um, on a paper napkin in her living room that weekend, literally, I bought the inventory from her garage in an old like carpet warehouse that they were storing it in. And um, I took over the business and, and that was six and a half years ago. It's incredible. And now obviously Frida as a brand is 
every time I have a friend who is pregnant or a new mom, I feel like they just become obsessed with it. You went from, you know, working in baseball to then uh, deciding it was ultimately the right time to take this move. And you also had three kids. How did having your three kids change how you looked at running the business when it is so clearly tied to that experience? Well, it certainly helped with the evolving and continued passion, but it's evolved with with each stage of parenting that I've actively navigated over the past seven years. And so when it started in the beginning, you could trace the product line to the age of my oldest child. I was literally solving pain points that I was experiencing at three in the morning and then would go in the next day to my team. We'd sketch out or talk about some sort of solution and go find someone to design it and make it for us. We've since evolved to you know over 100 plus employees with an R&D team and industrial designers. And my husband jokes, we'll have to continue having babies to fuel the innovation pipeline. But the product portfolio has evolved as my parenting journey has evolved. And so the best example I'll give you is we were at a Target meeting. This was, you know, probably two years after I took over and trying really hard to get into Target and CVS and the like. And I, Hunter was two at the time. And so they start to get their teeth and, you know, brushing a two-year-old's teeth is like brushing an animal's teeth. Like you just can't get in there. It's not like they're going to sit and keep their mouth open so you can do a great job. And it's really stressful because you know that the quality of their baby teeth impact the quality of their adult teeth. And so we had created this three-sided toothbrush that basically allowed you to brush their teeth in a third of the time. It was inspired by a pet toothbrush. It's literally as challenging to brush a toddler's teeth as it is a pet. And so we we were talking to our target buyer. We're in the middle of this line review. He had already carried a few of our baby products. And he said, this is great. I love this. We're going to put it in all stores. But, you know, it's a little outside of your target age range. Like you really serve like babies. And this is for older kids. What about also doing, you know, a finger brush for when they're younger? And it had totally escaped me that I was really like mapping to my own personal journey mm-hmm. and not necessarily a product portfolio that was representative of where my consumer was at the time. And so since then, and that was, you know, four or five years ago, we've created a vision for this business from a product perspective that not only continues to service the new consumers like you that enter the category every single day, right? Every, there are new babies born every single day, but also a product portfolio. And this, I think, is what sets us apart from sort of peers in our consumer products industry is a product portfolio that spans the experiences and these transitional life stages that you go through as a parent that really change every 18 to 24 months. I mean, you talk about milestones and I'm sure you've experienced this with your, throughout your pregnancy and a lot of what Freedom Mom is designed to serve is, you know, those transitions from pregnancy to postpartum and to breastfeeding and beyond. But those milestones are constantly changing and they get like, neglected after the first 12 months. You don't continue to receive those emails, right? Yeah. Um, and so our vision really is to continue to evolve with the consumers that we work so hard to acquire early on. Um, and to continue to be there for them to solve the new pain points that they have when you have a four-year-old or a five-year-old, and there are many. I want to go back to that stat you you talked about, which is your team has 50, your parents to 50 kids under 10. 
What have you tried in order to like figure out flexible work? What are some things that have tried or failed to support the working parents? This is honestly one of the things I'm most proud of. When I reflect on the past six years, we run such a people first organization, particularly in a time like we're navigating now where there are different social dynamics and and people rooted dynamics that you have to tend to you know, that has served us really well. And what I mean by that is we're very cognizant of the realities of navigating and juggling a personal parenting journey with a professional journey. And the best example I can give is actually something that happened most recently. I am committed to keeping parents, particularly women, in the workforce despite the temptation or fear of trying to juggle both. And we were recruiting for a really big role. So we had spent a really long time recruiting for this role and found a dream candidate. And she had a nine month old and it was an hour commute for her. We had gone through three rounds of recruiting and she finally called me and she said, I'm devastated. This is a dream job for me based on my experience, but I'm too scared to miss bath time every night just to commute home. And and there are things about being a mom that I want to be there. And I said to her, I said, I ref- you are so talented. I refuse to let you leave the workforce entirely. We will make this work. And granted, now everyone's working from home for the most part anyway. That's just a very small example of ways that I think employers can infuse flexibility easily just to keep women engaged for something that seems so trivial, right? Like, yeah. so you want to leave at four instead of six and you'll jump back onto the computer when your nine month old is asleep. No problem. What are some things that you've tried now that mostly everyone is working from home during COVID? It has been one of the most challenging times in my, in my past seven years running this business, both personally with my three children, but also being sort of the empathic organization that we are and and cognizant of the realities that our team is living through. And so one of the things that we did very early on in March was we put a two hour no meeting block on our calendars, everyone, the entire company. And for those employees who don't have to navigate those dynamics at home, Mm -hmm. um, that was time for like, whether they had to do errands or exercise That was great for them, but also it gave parents two hours to sit and do Zoom school with their kids side by side. And so sometimes it extended the length of the workday. You know, sometimes people are catching up early before their kids woke up, but it was two hours and we still have it through the summer. And I think the the feedback that we got from the team was really great. Those of us who didn't have children got a lot of focused work done or were meditating or exercising or, you know, ordering on Instacart, stuff that they didn't ordinarily have time to do. Um, And it was a really easy thing for us to be able to do, to give parents that like two hour time where they didn't have to choose between being a parent and being a professional. You work with your husband. He was your CMO and is the president of Frida. How do you do that and not kill each other? Very artfully and delicately. Eric ran Burger King for 10 years before I sort of begged him to leave and and come join us when we had gotten big enough to warrant his attention. But the reality is he was pretty much moonlighting for me for the past 
seven years. You know, he started at Burger King as CMO for a few years and he ran innovation there. And one of the core attributes of the way that he built that business is a very performance-rooted business, whereas I was building a very passion and purpose-driven business. And the combination of performance and passion and purpose is really, really amazing and hard to create. And you're sort of like a left brain, right brain complement in that way. And so, you know, while we were developing relationships with agencies to help us build out the brand, he was like a great, you know, thought partner and sounding board for me before he was officially on board. And then when he came on board, he sort of just elevated our focus on performance and analytics and shed light on the fact that they don't have to come at the expense of purpose and passion. And the reality is, Danielle, there are times when we do want to kill each other. You know, coming from me, you know, managing turning off and and my inability to do that. And it's, you know, 7 a.m. and we have one eye open and I shoot up and I'm like, did you do X, Y, and Z? And he's like, I don't even have, you know, my my eyes open yet. And (laughs) And it's Sunday. Like, can we just take a break? So... We try to institute the same sort of guardrails that everyone, I think, with children do, like no phones at dinner, date nights, but it's really hard. And I, you know, the truth is we both love what we're doing so much that it doesn't feel like work when we're sitting at dinner, you know, mapping out a vision for the next three years of the business. Is there something that helps you to turn off? It sounds like something that has been a work in progress. Yeah, I think... Rather than help me, there are obviously tactics like leaving your, your phone in a drawer, right? Like totally out of reach that I think are like universally accepted at this point. But there are realities of parenthood that make it more raw for me. Like when my four-year-old started like turning my head to face him when he would talk to me and say, mommy, look at me. Those are really like eye-opening moments as a parent that sort of are more effective than any like phone in the drawer tactic I think that you could use, honestly. They're raw and they're real and you see the impact that you're having on your children every single day when they look at the top of your head. Eric used to take pictures of me in the airport at restaurants of my part because he said that was the part of me that he had the best (laughs) relationship with. That's really funny. I wanna talk about Freedom Mom and some of the pushback you guys have had around billboards or network shows, kind of the the advertising. I think most notably, a lot of people saw that at the Oscars this past year, one of your ads was rejected for representing motherhood in a way that some found to be too graphic. I watched that, and I can say, just from my own personal opinion, of not having kids but being pregnant – That ad was the first time I was like, oh shit, like this is what it's going to be like. This is real. And like, thank God I watched it because I have no clue what's coming for me, but at least I saw that. What was your response, both as a businesswoman and also a mom? So it wasn't the first time we navigated rejection of that magnitude. And so that sort of helped prepare me. Um, So if you take it back sort of a year prior, we had worked really hard to create sort of a flagship partnership with Target to, to create a space in the store for this line of products. 
And that was really an exciting moment for us because we had actually underwritten this entire business strategy around being forced to go directly to our consumer because of how broken and fragmented the preparation process was for women. There was no, you know, you had to go to four different stores, seven different aisles, and you were still left Amazon priming things from your hospital bed after you got home to get what you need to to navigate sort of a, a postpartum recovery. And so we were shocked and thrilled that one of our largest customers came to the table as a partner for us, committed to giving us eight feet of shelf space, which was amazing, so forward thinking, huge for any consumer products business. And the mission behind the launch of Freedom Mom was to prepare first-time moms as if they were a third-time mom, right? And and that's, you know, there's like a like a lovely gloss on how we articulate that, but that's just the reality of what we were trying to accomplish. I, as a third-time mom, wanted to make sure that first-time moms like you felt as prepared and equipped to navigate what you were about to physically transform into as mm-hmm. I did my third time around. And so part of that was having an honest and raw conversation with our consumers. And that starts with packaging. When you're in 130,000 points of distribution, and we have a very omni-channel distribution strategy, CBS, Walgreens, Amazon, that is your best point of marketing. And so it started with the packaging and how we explained exactly where products are used and what stage of the regimen and systematize this vaginal recovery for women. And part of the sell-in process and, and the preparation to launch in, in a retailer like Target is you send all of your packaging to their what's called their planogram room. And so we have a great relationship with our buying team. We sent all the packaging, we sent the, you know, the sizing and the mock-ups, and I will never forget this. It was probably like three weeks before we were gonna launch. And we got a phone call from like senior executives there saying, we don't feel like your messaging on the box will resonate and might actually offend some of our consumers, particularly those who are from sort of the middle of the country who aren't as avant-garde or risque in the way that they receive information from brands. We had a really hard conversation and ultimately we had to say to them, this is so intertwined with the fabric of what we are trying to weave together for this consumer and having that honest, raw conversation, using the word vagina on the packaging and a billboard to talk about a woman's body after, you know, that is where the baby comes out. And that's where the products, they need to go. I looked at my team and my team was like ashen. We had like millions of dollars worth of inventory on the ocean, like en route to our warehouse. And we said, listen, if, if you don't understand what we're trying to accomplish and the way that we're trying to articulate it to our consumers, then this is probably not the right partnership for you. And, you know, Thankfully, they sort of called us back a few days later and they said, okay, we got approval to test it. Let's see how it goes. And we sold out within, you know, a matter of days. They had to buy into more inventory, which was so exciting for us. But it was a huge, huge moment for the team to sort of rally behind. Then fast forward, you know, February to the Oscars. We had been familiar with that type of rejection and the way that it resonated, I think, with with such a widespread audience, that rejection um, and the reality of the policies and media around what you can and can't advertise to analogize feminine care to gun control and religion and sex and violence and hemorrhoid relief was on that list. It felt like we could take a different angle with that sort of rejection that we ended up leveraging to sort of catapult the awareness of the brand to the next level. Yeah. 
I want to go to our last round, my favorite round, the lightning round. What's replaced your morning commute? Journal time with my children. Just like being, being with them. We have breakfast outside together. It's definitely time with my kids. What's the last show you binge watched? Oh my God. Carly just told me to watch it actually. It's the I May Destroy You. What is it on HBO? I feel like I've gotten to the end of Netflix or HBO. Who's the, the first person you call when you get good news? Definitely my husband. What about bad news? My mom. What's your biggest vice? Oof, my phone. It's sad but true. What is the one product, like freedom mom product, that as a first-time mom I'm going to need that I probably like have no clue exists? You know, Danielle, this is like asking a mom to pick her favorite child. I would say it's a toss-up between the Perry bottle and the instant ice maxi pads. It's like a spa for your vagina. That was a great, that was a great analogy. Um, when's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Yesterday. <laughs> last question, what's your shameless plug? You have to feel like a human to raise a human. And so that means taking care of yourself first. That was a great shameless plug. Those are all my questions. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 